0: Hi, and welcome to this episode of the Room & Room Podcasts. Hey, look, this episode is one of a series of podcasts brought to you by the Facebook group The Room & Room, and we're proudly supported by PGG Rites & Seeds. My name's Charlotte Westwood. I'm a veterinarian and nutritionist based at Kimaheer Research Centre in Canterbury. And in this episode, we're going to be discussing all things to do with nitrate toxicity in ruminant species, so that's like cattle, sheep and deer. Look, this condition is unfortunately not an uncommon condition, and that many of you that are tuning in will have certainly heard about it, uh, and if not, sadly, you've probably experienced it in some of your ruminant species. Now the condition is a nutritionally based condition in that it occurs when ruminant species consume either feeds or occasionally drinking water that contain high levels of nitrate, nitrate, nitrogen or nitrate, however you like to define it. So what we'll do with this podcast, we're going to split this topic into maybe seven size bites if you'd like or seven points so it's a bit easier to to get through this. Now number one we're going to kick off with just simply what is nitrate toxicity? How on earth does nitrate toxicity occur in our animals? Because when we understand what it is then we can start to put in place some plans about how to reduce risk to the animals. The second point, we're going to outline the clinical signs of nitrate toxicity, like, uh, in other words, what the animals might present like, what do they do, uh, how do they look abnormal, etc., and what you need to do to keep an eye out when you're worried about risk of nitrate toxicity. The third topic we'll, we'll um get into we'll be exploring oh why do our plants uh, that our animals graze even accumulate those high levels of nitrate Uh, if we could figure out or understand better why plants do that then maybe we can reduce risk to our animals as well Carrying on, uh, topic number four, we are going to talk specifically about why nitrate toxicity risk is higher uh, after the first rain and the flush of that nice green growth that comes away after a period of very dry weather, as well as some other weather-based factors that increase risk of nitrate toxicity, Number five, we will briefly cover about testing forage for nitrate, and I'm sure a lot of you uh, do that routinely, but for those of you newer to the industry, we'll cover off on on two different ways to do that. Point number six, we will definitely be moving into the tips and tricks about uh, how to manage, if we do know that our forage tests come back and the levels are high, what can we do um, to reduce risk to your stock? And finally, topic number seven. We'll cover off uh, on here around some ideas and advice what to do if you suspect that nitrate toxicity is present in some of your animals. But, and this is a very big but, your vet will of course be your number one go-to to to contact urgently if you are seeing uh, cases of nitrate in stock. We'll get the ball rolling first with How does nitrate toxicity, or nitrate poisoning if you call it that, occur? Well, like, first things first, like, nitrate toxicity is very much a feed-based challenge. So as a disease process, nitrate issues come wholly solely from the feed. So, Thankfully, you'll say in some regards is that nitrate toxicity certainly isn't an infectious um, type of disease that animals catch from one another or from us or anything. The only way that stock get toxicity issues with nitrate, as we said before, is when they eat, feed or drink water that contains high levels of nitrate. Now, sometimes there are low levels of nitrate in feeds and water, But the rumen, the good old rumen that we talked about uh, in the episodes around basic nutrition, it's a very clever place with an adaptable uh, range of microbes present that when exposed to low levels of nitrate, the rumen can handle that, not phased by it. And what the rumen does is convert nitrate that comes in the feed and um, drops into the rumen. The rumen cleverly takes care of that nitrate and converts it into less Nasty stuff, so that's good. So, what those bugs do, or the microbes do, is firstly they convert nitrate that comes from feed into stuff called nitrite, and then that nitrite in turn is converted into rumen ammonia. Now, again, if you've listened to those basic ruminant nutrition uh, podcasts that we started this series with, you'll know that then ammonia is turned into amino acids, and that's then turned into microbial protein. So when the rumen's functioning well, nitrate is no problems when there's um, nitrate coming in at only low levels. So where things start to uh, become unstuck is when animals, our grazing animals, eat our feeds or drink the water that contain much, much higher levels of nitrate. Now, the poor old rumen can handle low levels of nitrate converting through to nitrite and ammonia and then microbial protein. But the problems start when we overwhelm the rumen uh, and its capacity to successfully um, take the nastiness out of those levels of nitrate and turn them into microbial protein. And what happens is that with all the nitrate going on, we get rapid conversion to that intermediate protein. Uh, compound nitrite but where the poor old rumen bugs get overwhelmed is that they're going whoa look at all this nitrite that's been produced from nitrate but oh goodness we we the microbes cannot convert that into ammonia so oh there's a bit of a log jam in that process so we get an accumulation of levels of nitrite so that's with an I not an A nitrite and that surplus nitrite then jumps across the rumen wall Into the blood and this is where things start to go wrong for the animal's well-being. There's two key things that nitrite in the blood of the animal does that really aren't so nice for the animal and contribute to um, some of the the, uh, aspects around clinical and also subclinical disease. Firstly, the first thing that nitrite does that isn't good uh, for our grazing animals is that the nitrite acts as what we call a vasodilator. Now, it's a long word, eh? Simply put, all all that means is that we get a reduction in blood flow around the body because that nitrite uh, affects the muscular walls of the capillaries and and small arteries and arterioles around the body. Poor blood flow uh, around the body is contributing to reduce um, flow of oxygen and getting rid of carbon dioxide and, and nutrients around the body and you know, poor old animals, they have low blood pressure. Like, you know, like any of you that suffer low blood p- uh, pressure, you feel a bit blah and lightheaded. Well, well, that happens with affected stock as well. So that's the number one way that nitrite uh, can make animals feel a bit crook. But the second and probably more important nasty thing that nitrite uh, does for our poor old ruminants when we have way too much nitrite leaving the rumen and entering the blood is that inside the red blood, blood cells that kind of bob and flow around inside the bloodstream, nitrite uh, reacts with the red stuff, the red compound inside of those red blood cells that is called haemoglobin. So you might have heard haemoglobin from maybe uh, fourth form science, year 10 science at school, and you might remember that that haemoglobin has a really important um, role to, inside those red blood cells because haemoglobin um, picks up or holds hands, if you like, with the oxygen in and the lungs of or your lungs and your animal's lungs, and carries that oxygen round the body to supply oxygen to all the tissues um, that keep the animal. Uh, Going and very well, well, for us as humans as well. So that's what normally happens that oxygen um, is carried by hemoglobin uh, to tissues, and then the tissues go, Thanks very much, I'm having that oxygen, but here in return, you can have some carbon dioxide. And then the hemoglobin kind of holds hands with that carbon dioxide, takes it back to the lungs, and then obviously um, gets into the lungs and gets exhaled out. So, wow, this hemoglobin stuff needs to be working really, really well um, for an animal to be well. So this is where nitrite's a bit of a baddie. What nitrite does is it converts that nice red hemoglobin into a compound called methemoglobin. And methemoglobin is like a really weird form of hemoglobin um, in that the hemoglobin molecule's still there, uh, but it can no longer carry oxygen. Uh, and carbon dioxide around the body. So obviously the hemoglobin won't hold hands, if you'd like, with the oxygen anymore. So as the blood continues to flow around the body, those red cells go bouncing um, helplessly past the various tissues around the body and and those tissues go without oxygen. So that's what happens with nitrate. And I guess the description of those blood changes then leads us into point number two about nitrate toxicity what are the clinical signs that we see with cases of nitrate toxicity in your animals? What we mean by clinical signs is we mean like those obvious signs that things aren't well with your affected animal. So you might have heard the term clinical and subclinical signs. Um, and when we compare clinical, is like very obvious. And the term subclinical nitrate toxicity means there's things aren't going very well for the animals like behind the scenes, but often they're not obvious uh, immediately to us. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of the subclinical signs of nitrate very shortly. So look, there's two main ways that nitrate toxicity might present uh, in our animals it's often a very scary um, kind of condition to um, to come across in your animals. You may just be going to um, lock animals away after letting them drift away from the dairy shed if, if milking cows, and you're just going to lock animals away, check the troughs are right, and all of a sudden you find either some down animals down on the ground or acutely very unwell animals. So it's it's quite a quite a oh when you least expect it kind of conditions. Now these are the sudden effects that can often happen as as quick as like only um, 30 to 60 minutes after your animals start to eat the high nitrate feed so it's really fast look to be honest sadly often the first sign that you know about this acute form of nitrate toxicity is that you'll see animals down in the paddock they may be collapsed and if they're still alive they'll be quite unwell um, or sadly they may have already succumbed they may have already um, died with toxicity and yeah that's just an awful thing to see If your animals, um, some of the animals are still up on their feet, I mean, that's good, uh, but they will typically be showing signs of a condition, what we call hypoxia. So hypoxia means not enough oxygen in the blood, and there's not enough oxygen reaching all the tissues uh, around the body, including the gut um, and other tissues, and importantly including the poor old brain, because that methemoglobin is no longer carrying oxygen. So look, these animals uh, may still be on their feet, and some of the things that they may do—it um, just depends—depends um, depends how badly affected they are, and also the the uh, physiological state of the animals, whether they're lactating or uh, milking or dry. But look, animals may um, appear wobbly and stumbly and but staggery, and. A bit staggering, and in the case of dairy cows or heavily in lamb use, these signs might be a bit confusing because they may be similar to what um, you would be more uh, familiar with, such as metabolic conditions like uh, uh, you know like ketosis or Uh, milk fever or even grass tetany, because sometimes you see um, some neurological signs where they might look a bit annoyed and aggressive or they may be very dull and dopey. Look, other signs may be that they're down and and having a roll um, or standing up and and having a kick at their guts with what we call colic or or gut ache-like symptoms. And in these lactating or uh, heavily in-calf dry pregnant dairy cattle, they might actually just go down with what they look like as milk fever. So they might be down and their heads are um, turned around and tipped back on their flank. Or if you pull the head out straight, you'll get that classic kind of S-bend in the neck that we normally associate with uh, milk fever or hypocalcemia. So there's a range of different ways uh, that these animals present. If the animals are down, one thing that you can have a look at, uh, we'll come back about the urgency of needing to contact your vet, but if they're down and you're waiting for the vet to turn up, Take a look at the gums of the animals. When we have nitrate toxicity, instead of being a nice, healthy pink colour, the gums will look a bit of a weird colour. They might be a little bit bluish and brown in colour. And if, if you press into the gums, normally um, the gums refill with nice pink colour if you if you push into the gums. And if you push into these gums, sometimes the, the, um, there'll be an indent from your finger that stays white, So like we say, it's a combination of the effects of poor circulation of blood around the body uh, and that metHemoglobin doing this thing. So the blood can actually look brown. And if you want to treat in terms of using calcium borogluconate CBG or one of the combination products, when you put a needle into the jugular vein of a a dairy cow that's down with nitrate toxicity rather than a nice, deep, healthy red colour, that blood can sometimes come out looking a bit brown and that's because the metHemoglobin gives it that brown colour. As we mentioned, sometimes we see the subclinical effects of nitrate toxicity, so that means the animals may not be really unwell, but we get other signs. Now, some of these other signs may happen quite a bit of time later after the, the animals are exposed to high nitrate feeds or stock water. Things that you may see could be, for example, because we haven't had enough oxygen and nutrients going around the body to supply the very sensitive Laminae of the feet, that uh, it's kind of like the nail bed on our fingers and toes that uh, grows the claw or the horn of the the foot, and uh, that can cause issues with lameness um, from that laminitis, uh, in many cases weeks or even a couple of months after that nitrate event. Other signs, unfortunately, of nitrate toxicity uh, do include in cattle, particularly the the loss, um, preterm loss uh, or abortion of pregnancies in cattle. Sadly, these pregnancy losses can continue to occur for up to two weeks after that event, so it's a pretty distressing thing to deal with. In sheep, they also um, the pregnancy can also be affected by high nitrate, and they too can lose pregnancies. It tends to be more of a resorption, um, where the pregnancy sort of goes, disappears, uh, and, and isn't actually lost outside the ewe, but it gets resorbed. Or in some cases, if pregnant ewes get exposed to high nitrate feeds around day 60, Of pregnancy, that can actually result in some fetal abnormalities so that you get lambs born at full term or maybe close to um, full term, but they can have some fetal abnormalities due to disruption of um, placental blood flow to that developing lamb or lambs. We'll just jump in here with one quick word about the susceptibility of different ruminant species to nitrate toxicity. As we mentioned before, these the lactating and pregnant cattle and sheep are on average more susceptible to nitrate toxicity uh, than dry stock, like, like non-lactating, non-pregnant. And look, it's mainly because these preg- heavily pregnant uh, and also lactating animals, what they do, they eat more feed per unit of live weight on a dry matter basis than a dry cow or dry, dry ewe does. So essentially they're eating more kilograms of dry matter per day than a dry animal. So that's part of it. And similarly, younger animals are more susceptible for the same reason. Because they're young and growing, they're eating more feed on a kilogram dry matter basis uh, than uh, adult dry animals. In other words, it's uh, rich maturity, it's no longer growing and has no demands for pregnancy or lactation. In terms of resilience or ability to handle nitrate, it seems that on average uh, sheep can be somewhat more uh, resilient than uh, uh, cattle to the effects of nitrate but like many of you tuned in and and certainly us here at the room and room and, and our team we unfortunately have been involved with quite a number of cases of, of sheep deaths and um, illness when sheep graze high nitrate feeds. So sheep are more resilient than cattle. But yeah, sadly, when nitrate levels are very high and risk factors around plants accumulating nitrate are very high, we'll still see that as a uh, as an issue in sheep. Point number three, we're starting to tune through into some of the, the shorter topics around nitrate now is, I guess, answering why do plants... Why have plants taken it upon themselves to accumulate nitrate to start with? If only we could tell or convince or treat plants in some way to stop them taking nitrates up. Well, easier said than done. <laughs> like here at The Room and Room, we're very much about the animals, but talking with colleagues and more knowledgeable people in this area, apparently it's all to do with the metabolism by our plants. So these are our rye grasses, our brassicas, our maize, our winter cereals. Look, these plants are really hungry and very efficient at taking up nitrogen-containing compounds from the soil. So when we have conditions that are favourable to have a lot of nitrate sitting around the roots of the plant, (laughs) the plant helpfully says, oh, thanks very much, I'm going to have that, and slurps it up the roots, um, up into the above-ground green bits of the plant. And it's (laughs) in terms of whether those nitrates are going to be risky to the animal, depends very much on the growing conditions and what that plant's doing. So if life's good for that plant, it hasn't really been bothered by um, drought and it's had consistent rainfall and life is good and there's plenty of sunshine so there's lots of photosynthesis happening and converting um, goodies that have been pulled up from the soil into plant growth, Those plants will cleverly um, and quite quickly convert that nitrate, (laughs) ironically to nitrite, just like in the rumen, but anyway, converts the nitrate to nitrite and then very quickly to ammonia. So it is a bit of a mirror what happens in the rumen, but then it carries on and the plants will convert ultimately that nitrate through those um, processes through to amino acids and plant proteins. So as we all know, plant proteins, yep, are totally safe for the grazing animal. So there's no dramas uh, with nitrate buildup. Now, where things potentially come unstuck for that plant is when, for a whole range of reasons, the plants continue to slurp out that nitrate from the soil around around the roots, but for a whole raft of um, reasons, the plant doesn't get around to converting that nitrate to nitrite, to ammonia, to protein, yada, so, yeah, we, we get a build-up. We get an increase accumulation of nitrate inside, um, particularly inside the stems, um, but also leaf material. Uh, and if that conversion through to protein is simply not happening, uh, that plant will continue to just day-on-day day accumulate nitrate up to the toxic levels that cause our, our poor old grazing animals a problem. So risk factors, as we've already kind of mentioned, is that... Uh, It might be that your plants are growing really, really well, like a lot of moisture, nice, warm growing conditions. But hey, maybe there's not a lot of sun around. So without the sun, um, so it might be, uh, you know, really cloudy and overcast. Um, There's not so much photosynthesis going on. So the plant's not getting the energy that it needs to do useful things like converting nitrates into protein. So yeah, lovely warm growing conditions, very cloudy and overcast, it's a big red flag that your plants might not be converting nitrate back into plant proteins. Or maybe, particularly uh, those of you um, further south um, in the uh, southern areas of New Zealand, uh, or you know maybe uh, Tasmania and Australia, when it's midwinter we might have the sun out, but because Particularly midwinter, we've got quite short day length, um, you know, long nights and short days. uh, And or maybe um, in those southern climates, the angle of the sun is really low in the sky. It's harder for those leaves on the plants to intercept the the old sunshine uh, and that can increase risk as well uh, for plants to accumulate nitrates. So yeah, not enough sunshine, dull overcast conditions. Look, other factors that increase risk of nitrate is when we get like stock, start growing conditions. So it might be uh, you're heading into winter, things have been going really well, your uh, your pastures and, and forage crops have been growing really well, and then bang, you get two or three really hard frosts in a row, and you go, oh, that's the first bit of winter bite for the year. And then the sun comes out and we get another few days of beautiful warm weather and you know maybe you get a lot of sun again and night temperatures come up again and the plants essentially um, scream to a stop with the frosts, but then they get going again and start to grow. That's also very high risk for a nitrate accumulation because the plant uh, stops pulling nitrates up and then handbrake comes off and away it goes again, so stop start growing conditions is a, a real problem. Other things including use of uh, nitrogen-containing fertilisers like sevurea or some of the slow release um, forms of nitrogen. Now there is a strong relationship between putting nitrogen fert onto pastures and crops and the risk of nitrate accumulation. So what we mean by that is when you throw nitrogen fert on, which we need to do to grow feed, uh, we increase risk of nitrate accumulation. So look, there's lots of rules of thumb around how much nitrogen can you put on and You know, are there rules of thumb around, um, units of N per hectare does equate to how many days we have to wait to reduce risk of uh, nitrate toxicity? No, we're not going to endorse any of those rules of thumb um, because of the complexities of the plant deciding whether or not it's going to pull up nitrates and or convert into protein. There's no safe rules of thumb. So, thus some of the key risk factors. But we need to acknowledge that not all plants are equally bad for nitrate risk. We tend to see nitrate accumulation more in the really fast-growing, particularly autumn-planted annual forages. So that might be uh, an annual or Italian ryegrass. It might be green-feed cereals such as oats or or triticale, maybe forage brassicas. And these fast-growing annuals, tend to be the usual culprits, particularly uh, in autumn uh, cases of nitrate toxicity um, when we have those weather conditions around that are a bit sus for um, increased risk of nitrate. That said, perennial ryegrass and white clover pastures, you know what, they're supposed to be lower risk But I'll tell you what, when we've got really risky conditions, let's say we've had a long, warm autumn and then suddenly we get a decent autumn break after a long dry period, that's really, really risky. And we'll come back uh, exactly why it's risky coming out of a drought. Now, do please remember that many common weed species that you find in your pastures or crops Particularly uh, in annual crops, things like and not limited to, but things for example like uh, amaranthus. If you have cape weeds, a major problem. Cape weeds, a notorious one for accumulating high levels of nitrate. So yeah, these weeds can quite often be even riskier than our desirable annual crops or perhaps perennial pastures waking up after a drought. So. When you suspect nitrate toxicity uh, and perhaps you have the vet on your place and you're looking around, remember some of those weed species, strongly accumulating nitrate, even more so than your forage crops. Right, now we're going to move on to point number four. Why after a long, warm, dry spell, whether that's quite a few weeks of no rain or even longer if we've had quite a nasty summer and early autumn drought, why do we get more risk of nitrate than we do from after a long wet summer? Well, look, it's all to do with what we call uh, nitrogen mineralisation that happens in the soil. So what mineralisation is, is when conditions are nice and warm and underneath the plants, the microbes in the soil are busily breaking down through this long warm dry period, uh, breaking down the organic nitrogen And converting that into inorganic forms of nitrogen, that includes different types of inorganic nitrogen, but in our case we're talking about nitrates. So long periods of warm weather and then a sudden jumping out of the ground boost in growth rates of your forage crops or even perennial pastures all of that nitrate as a result of mineralisation is sitting around the roots of the plant. So when we have that lovely lush first regrowth post dry spell, that's real dynamite for um, being risky for nitrate. So do keep an eye on that. Okay, now we're up to point number five. This is about testing samples of forage for the levels of nitrate in that forage. Now, Unlike some anti-nutritional compounds associated with forages that we can't test for, thankfully with nitrate we can test levels and that'll help us predict the level of risk to our grazing animals when we reckon that because of the weather, like we just talked about, or maybe inadvertently the furt truck's been around and spread food on the wrong paddock, um, or there's other risk factors in play that makes it, uh, make us a bit sus that nitrate may be a problem. So there's a real opportunity then to test forages for levels of nitrate well before we put animals onto that crop or pasture. Now there's two ways to test for nitrate. Firstly is to send f- samples of your forage away to a feed testing lab. And the secondly is to do a quick test that you can either buy kit from your vet practice and do it yourself or many vet practices will just offer for you to drop forage off to the vet practice and they'll do it for you. So when we look at these two ways of testing for nitrate, there's sort of pros and cons on each. Firstly, the gold standard of the feed testing lab is awesome. You'll get what we call a quantitative result. So you might get a level of um, 1,000 milligrams per kilogram dry matter of nitrate compared to the dipstick. It's less accurate. We call it semi-quantitative. It'll give you a ballpark figure um, of what's happening in your plants. But hey, it's all done and dusted within 30 minutes. So you'll get a quick turnaround versus your feed testing lab by the time. The old couriers, it seem to get slower all the time. um, Get your sample to the lab and then the lab emails you back a result. Um, It is a slower turnaround time. One thing about sampling forage for nitrate Interestingly enough, within your plants, different bits of your plants will accumulate different amounts of nitrate. So you can get around that by, uh, say, you've got a forage rape plant uh, that's not too tall. You can obviously snap and break that up into lots of bits and shove it inside the feed testing bag to send away, or, or then to be chopped up to do with your quick uh, quick test stick. But If you want to test some plants and the plants are huge, let's say uh, 1st of June you want to do uh, some kale and you can only get so much in a feed testing bag to test, just chop some bits of the lower part of the stem because if that comes back low, that means that the whole plant will definitely be low because nitrate accumulates more in the stem of plants, so that might be the stems of brassicas, the stem of maize, um, part of the stover that's chopped into the maize silage, compared to the leaf. So if you test just the leaf because it's easy to harvest and and to shove into a feed testing bag, and it comes back low, there will be a risk that the whole plant actually still high because nitrate levels are, are many times higher in the stem than in the leaf so if you want to do the worst case scenario and you test the stem and it's okay the whole plant will be okay Now, interpreting results, well, the numbers you get back are going to depend on where you send your foragers to. And as we said before, whether the feed testing lab gives you a hard, fast number or whether the vet practice or your own result um, comes back to you with the results from what we call the dipstick approach. Firstly, we'll look at um, lab test results. Now, just a word of caution here is that different feed testing labs may report your nitrate result as either simply nitrate as a percent of dry matter. Other labs will report it as nitrate nitrogen, so it's nitrate dash uh, n on your results. And then further to confuse things further, the nitrate n results may be reported as either milligrams per kilogram or percent of dry matter. Um, PPM parts per million and milligrams per kilogram dry matter. Those two units are the same. It's just a different way of saying the same number. So just be careful because if you and your neighbour both test each of your crops or your pastures for nitrate, one of you sends it away to one feed testing lab and one sends it away to another feed testing lab and you're gleefully saying my level is 200 and your neighbour says my level is 1,000, just check the units because you might be talking about completely different numbers. So just be careful with that. And the other type of test we mentioned is that sort of paddock level test approach with the kits that you can purchase from your local vet practice, or certainly here in New Zealand anyway. And those will give you some different numbers again, and they cannot be directly compared with the results that you get from the feed testing lab. So the cut points at which we say your forage is safe for partly risky, but you might be all right, or very, very high, don't touch it. Those cut points will be different. For the feed testing kits that uh, are commonly used here in New Zealand, we'll get levels of um, the dipstick approach. 25 is less than 25 is okay. 25 to 100 is risky and greater than 100, don't touch it. Now that's very different to say, we'll pick on one lab, Hill Laboratories here, who report their nitrate as nitrate n as milligrams per kilogram of dry matter. And that's, remember, the same as PPM. And they say that we should be starting to get worried any anything above a 1,000 milligrams per kilogram dry matter and um, 3,500 is getting real risky and don't touch it over 4,000. So all of a sudden you can see those two normal ranges are totally different. Anyway, right, back to what we can do if you have tested your, your forage for nitrate by whatever means you've chosen and what if they are high. Point number six, how are we going to manage a high nitrate crop that perhaps we've tested and you now need to graze that crop? Maybe you have grown an amazing um autumn planted paddock of oh, let's say winter star too, any ryegrass. You know, it's looking dark green and it's and it's, you know, you got three tonne almost on it and looks a picture yum. But you know, you think, right, I have got to be careful with this nitrate stuff, eh? So uh Hill Laboratories process the sample for you and it comes back at six thousand milligrams of nitrate per kilogram of dry matter now. Like we said before, depending on your stock class, different cut points have different meanings, but anything over 4,000 milligrams of nitrate in per kilogram of dry matter is a definite no-no. So what do we do now? It needs a a quick nip off. It's getting a bit too tall um, with good growth rates forecast over the next few weeks. Look, to be honest, the best thing that you can do is actually hold off, uh, skip that paddock or paddocks that have tested high, and what we suggest is to retest that ryegrass again in another few days. If the sun's out and life is good, hopefully that nitrate N level will start to drop down quite quickly as photosynthesis occurs. The sun um, is providing that plant with the ability to convert nitrate ultimately through to plant proteins. Leaving it to grow out is definitely the most practical and appropriate advice. But, you know, we're only human, <laughs> us a lot. And we're going, oh, let's, let's find out some of the stories. We'll ask the neighbour, we'll ask dad, we'll ask, you know, granddad, what did he do back in the day or grandma? But look, there's some definite no-nos that we must not do, thinking that we can get levels of nitrate down. So let's first look at the, the, the old wife's tale about, you know, mowing your high nitrate crop in, in front of your stock. You oh, know, that'll that'll respire it out. It'll do. No, no, no. Do you know that levels of nitrate can actually increase after you've mown a high nitrate feed or forage and, and allowing it to wilt? So that's a nook definite no-no. What if, and not so much in New Zealand, but you're farming somewhere like Australia where we reckon that the weather forecast is awesome how about we drop it and quick dry down we'll turn it into hay maybe that'll get rid of a nitrate, well no, nope, 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 definitely not levels of nitrate stay very high in hay, so uh, not an option for us in the autumn in New Zealand, but if you're farming somewhere a little bit, uh, bit, bit warmer in Australia perhaps, um, that's a no-no, hay will do nothing. So then we go, right, if we can't do either of those ideas, what about if we turn it into silage or baleage? Well, we're not saying no, 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 nope entirely, but just be warned that in siling, whilst it might sometimes slightly drop levels of nitrate in that final ensiled feed, if levels are very high to start with, even if we halved it, you may still have a toxic feed on your hands with high levels, residual levels of nitrate in that silage. There is a suggestion that if you were to feed the silage out, you know, like a grass silage out, like a couple of days ahead of when the animals come onto it, you'll get some conversion of nitrate through to ammonia and then that'll what we call volatilise off and be lost. So it's just it's hard to predict how much you have to lose to make it safe so it still remains risky and also if you're feeding that baleage or silage in uh, enclosed spaces like perhaps a wintering barn where you've got curtains pulled down to keep the prevailing wind out just be careful that uh, ammonia levels from volatilizing off that high nitrate silage might actually uh, be harmful to both both us working in that barn and also to our animals um, in terms of um, irritating our lungs and stuff so um, while we're on the topic of silage, we we did mention before about high nitrate and maize silage, and if that maize crop has really struggled through the summer and early autumn and then you chop it for silage, just be aware that we talked about high levels in the stem, remember, particularly, and that's true for maize as well. And of course, because maize silage is what we call a whole crop silage, um, which is the cobs and and stover all all, um, chopped up together, we will have stem mixed through that final maize silage and you can end up with high levels of nitrate in maize silage. So it may be that if you've uh, had one of those long, hard summers and the maize either hasn't grown that well or perhaps it's had a flush of growth just before you you chop it, then you're probably going to have to check that for nitrate. Oh, actually, while we're on the point about old wives' tales about what else to do with high nitrate forages, glyphosate um, applied to annual forage crops and does that reduce risk of nitrate? Well, we're back to that. No, 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 nope. Um, We do not have... Uh, replicated scientific trials to show um, succinctly, like absolutely, that uh, a light rate of glyph- uh, glyphosate uh, will reduce your nitrate. So that's a no and wouldn't advise that. I'd never, never hand on heart advise anyone to do that. Preventing it at the animal level. Let's say you feed tested your forage, uh, you're you're in agreement that it's risky to follow some of those old wild and we know the levels are high, but for whatever reason, you may still have to graze it, you don't have time uh, to to leave it a few days and retest it may be, that you've got trucks arriving um, bringing dry dairy cows uh, to a runoff and you've just got to feed that feed because it's all you've got and it happens to be high nitrate. What do we do? Well, as I say, honestly, you're best to wait if you can, but if there's just no way that you can wait, the most important thing we are going to have to do with stock that have just arrived and you do need to carefully bring them onto a high nitrate crop. Something we don't endorse, but if that's all you've got as an option, is to fill your stock up with a heap of really yummy, tasty baleage. Hay works really well if you have it. And we need to fill them up so that they are just engorged on so much yummy baleage and hay that when they do go onto a high nitrate crop in a very measured and careful way, that'll stop the hungry ones gorging themselves silly on that high nitrate pasture crop and being at very high risk of nitrate toxicity. So as look as well as that, it's really important to remember, remember the beginning of this rather long podcast that we talked about nitrate um, can actually knock animals over and, and they'll succumb to high nitrate issues as quickly as like 30 to 60 minutes after they go on high nitrate. So the next really number one important tip is Put them across onto, if you can, a very limited break, like break fence off this this high suspect, um, high feed, high nitrate feed. And I would not leave them on for more than uh, 30 minutes, maybe out to an hour at the most, on the first one to two days of starting onto the high nitrate feed. Uh, You can never be too careful. 30 to 60 minutes and then take them off again for the rest of the day and the night and uh, redo that again the following day and increase in a time-related manner over a period of up to 10 days. If we allow our ruminant species time to adapt to nitrate, the rumen microbes will very helpfully shift the balance of different rumen uh, microbe species around to those that are more effective at converting that nasty nitrite that otherwise goes and wrecks the blood, um, you get different types of uh, rumen microbes present that can better and more efficiently get rid of that nitrite and turn it into microbial protein. Yay! So that's got to be good, but that doesn't happen overnight. You've uh, got to allow at least sort of 10 to 14 days for that to happen, which means that gradual adaptation. Now the other thing when you are starting your stock onto uh, a high nitrate crop, if you absolutely must, they're, so we'll tick the box here, they're already um, chock full of feed. Uh, balage and hay is particularly good at fueling the rumen bugs with the right type of energy to reduce risk of nitrate. Uh, but the other most important thing to do is, even though inevitably this will be a busy time of year for you, um, there's so many other things to do, look, just Uh, pull up next to them in the ute if it's cold or just just sit off to one side and you stay with them for that 30 to 60 minutes. Uh, Maybe bring a mate, scroll a bit of social media, but keep a real close eye on them because those clinical signs we mentioned before can happen remember as quickly as 30 to 60 minutes Uh, and we'll talk about what to do if you see these clinical signs shortly. Finishing on to our last point around nitrate toxicity, what to do... If you see suspected cases of nitrate toxicity in your stock, even if you don't think it, maybe it's nitrate, maybe it could be something else, grass, tetany, or whatever, what do we do? Look, first things first, um, we've all got, you know, sort of different levels um, at which we get a bit panicked and upset. And I have to say, for nitrate, for the majority of us, look, it's really upsetting. Uh, graduate vet going out to my first nitrate. Case of dry dairy cows on annual ryegrass. So I, I got pretty panicked and upset. So it's, we're only human. It's OK. So if this happens, just take some deep breaths. Just try and ground yourself and just just try and remain focused. Number one thing um, to do, Will depend on um, whereabouts in the seniority order you are within your team. If you're a junior member of a team, obviously you'll have your go to to urgently call um, either your boss that you report through to or uh, a more experienced team member to find out what to do. But if they're not picking up the phone, ring someone else and then ring someone else again until you do talk to someone if you're not too experienced. If you are an experienced team member, sadly, you've probably seen this before and you'll appreciate that this is a real emergency cases of nitrate toxicity. And of course, as a more senior team member, you'll be on the phone calling your vets. So, again, it's hard when you're a bit panicked and, and concerned, but you know, when they pick up at the vet uh, practice, just clearly and very carefully explain uh, to the person that's answered the phone uh, at the vet practice that you do suspect nitrate toxicity in your stock and that a number of animals are affected and you do need some some pretty urgent help look vets i know uh, vets are always busy and everything but i'll tell you what they'll do their very very best um to really around as many helpers as they can, can like extra vets and um and uh, techni- animal technicians and everything to come and give you a hand so Now, what we're not going to talk about uh, here in the Room & Room podcast today is the various approaches to treating uh, animals that are affected by nitrate toxicity. Look, the reason we're not going to talk about that is it's really cool that we do have an international audience who tune into uh, both the Room & Room podcasts, but also the Room & Room Facebook group. And we are very sensitive to the fact that some of the approaches and treatments available to us here in New Zealand are not necessarily available um, for vets to treat in other countries. So look, um, here at The Room and Room, we're not going to talk about the uh, different uh, approaches with treatment uh, or or expected prognosis of affected animals, etc., because your vet knows you. Your animals, uh, your particular setup, and your vet will be very much the person that will be able to assist you with the best advice specific to your situation. That said, once you have rung the vet, and particularly if you're a little bit further out of town and it's going to be a while for them to get there, what you can do, um, and this will be following the advice of your vets, so like do ask them the question, What can I do? But the sort of things to consider would be firstly to run the unaffected stock that still look well off uh, what you suspect is a high nitrate feed. So getting those unaffected animals off is appropriate but again this isn't meant to override the advice of your own vet. If you are taking animals off high nitrate feeds we want to then um, hopefully you can ring someone and get someone to come in with some baleage or maybe you've got a precious resource like hay maybe for your calves that you can sneak a couple of bales out and let these animals gorge on lots of yummy supplements. Now, if you do run them off into a paddock that's a little bit further away from where the high nitrate feed is, just remember that once you run those off, you keep an eye on those uh, animals that you've taken off and are feeding baleage and hay to because... Even though they appear okay at this stage, the the peak levels of methemoglobin in the blood, that's that brown stuff in the blood, occur around about four to five hours after um, those animals first eat the high nitrate feed. So you might still get the odd wobbly one and unwell one, even though you've got them off the crop. So just, if you can't, if you haven't got time to sit with those ones that have come off, just just get someone to go and keep checking them um, and having a look. So, team, we're going to finish this up now, but look, summing up on some of the key points about nitrate, look, firstly, we agree that nitrate toxicity is, hey, it's very much a, a feed-related condition, eh? So it's not, nothing infectious, and, and you're not going to catch it from, from stock over the fence, away from your stock and that sort of stuff. The majority of the cases are based around those fast-growing annual crops, remember? You know, like your short-rotation rye grasses, that's your annuals and Italians and your... Green feed cereals, um, brassicas, uh, and of course our maize as well, um, that can be an issue. And do remember that whilst those perennial pastures, your perennial rye rice clover pastures, in theory don't accumulate as much nitrate as other feeds, I'll tell you what, they can still get levels just as high or even higher under some conditions. So don't be lulled that uh, your perennial or permanent pastures are safe because they can sometimes do weird things, particularly coming out of a drought. Look, we went through those clinical signs, don't even like to talk about it, but look, we we do need to be aware of it, you know, that sudden death. Um, obviously, animals die suddenly of other things, but, um, you know, we're looking for a few sudden deaths uh, in a paddock, and there may be some others that also still upright, but looking quite unwell. Remember, they stumble and get a bit of that colic or gut ache and uh, breathe really fast like, like a sort of agonal gasping we call it where they, they can't get enough oxygen into them they're trying to compensate for the fact there's not enough oxygen in the blood and for those animals you can get close to have a look for those those muddy bluish brown coloured gums that look a bit weird from that methemoglobin stuff we mentioned about maize silage, um, but also your your ryegrass-dominant silages cut from short-rotation grasses can sometimes contain high levels of nitrate. So you can test your silages uh, and do keep in mind your maize silage harvested in late summer early autumn when the ground conditions have been, you know, like stop-start conditions, really dry and then suddenly a flush of growth or whatever. Obviously testing Look, we really think that testing is really important. Understand that the feed testing labs do take a bit of time to get a result back and you may be wanting to graze this right here and now. And if that's the case, go and talk to your vets um, and ask about to purchase a, the, the quick test that takes about 30 minutes and of course ask for a demo in the clinic about how to do that test uh, so you get the methodology just right. With these different values that you get from the dipstick test that you dipstick, you compare against the back of the, um, the, um, the test strip container or whether you get a result from the feed testing lab, they're all different units. So just really be careful to look at the, the ranges that are provided to you by your, your dipstick test um, results um, or the feed testing lab. They'll give you the ranges that they suggest that you should be either safe and good to go or maybe risky or just no, 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 don't touch it. We talked about if you have to graze a high nitrate crop, it's very much about filling your stock up with a heap of other very tasty, yummy um, baleage. That hay's awesome, but appreciate a lot of people don't necessarily have a lot of hay available anymore. And then putting stock out when they're really full of other feeds onto a very limited area um, of that suspect or known high nitrate feed. And to manage risk by on-off grazing on a time basis on that limited area and take them off after that 30 to 60 minutes and we're not going to go and leave them, are we? We're going to hang out, have something to eat, have your lunch, have your brekkie, uh, scroll the phone, but keep glancing up if you're going to scroll the phone or tune into a podcast, maybe. Look, quite seriously, though, there is always going to be risk when you graze these high-risk crops and your attitude to risk and your your risk appetite, if you'd like, will vary depending on whether you've got other feeds to go to and allow those those crops to grow out and retest them or whether you have to, have to, have to graze these even though you don't want to. Right, so we're going to finish up on this topic around nitrate. It's been a long one, but gosh, out of toxicities in New Zealand, we have to think that nitrate's probably right up the top of the list for it being a relatively common condition. Uh, So hope that you forgive us that we've spent a bit of time chatting about this one. So, look, whether you're an experienced person and maybe we've just uh, refreshed a bit of your knowledge that you knew in the back of your mind there, uh, or maybe you're new to the industry, you know, junior staff member coming through the ranks, really wish you all the best on coming up with ideas and plans how you'll implement a reduced risk of nitrate in your stock uh, in the autumn or winter. So look, as with anything to do with animal health and well-being, probably the last thing to reiterate, to repeat to you, is please do discuss nitrate toxicity with your vet uh, and he or she will take you through specific advice that relates directly to you, your farm business and your stock classes. So yeah, podcasts might be kind of helpful, but you can't beat boots on the ground. Locals talking to you about that, eh? And then the final um, point is to remember, if anything even looks like cases of nitrate toxicity on uh, pastures or forage crops, call your vet urgently, as in drop everything. And look, within reason, I know your vets would rather get a uh, a false alarm and it's actually something else, um, as opposed to leaving animals down on the ground, you know, a few hours later, it's really hard to, to successfully save those ones oh, look, thanks heaps again for, for joining us today on this podcast. Really appreciate you've uh, taken a bit of time out of your day or managed to multitask while you're doing other things to listen in. And, we look, we really look forward to having you tune in for some of the future episodes we'll be posting. So this has been Charlotte Westwood, a veterinarian with PGG Rights and Seeds. And, look, on behalf of all of us uh, here at The Room and Room and PGG Rights and Seeds, have an awesome day. Cheers.